Hi, I'm Dina. And I'm Anoshi. And, and this, this is Formalized Curiosity. Curiosity, a podcast of cross-cultural conversations in our quest to understand the world around us. This episode is part of our series on dysfunction, where we explore the ways in which our political, economic, and social systems malfunction, why it happens, and sometimes how to fix them. And today we're going to be talking about uh, this book, Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein. Uh Uh-oh, the text is backwards, but you get what I'm saying. It's it's a pretty looking book. Um, And uh, yeah, today we're going to be talking, uh, give you sort of a brief summary of the book, but also give us, give you some of our thoughts on uh, on the book, both from our perspective as computational biologists, but also as just people interested in politics. Great. So um, before we begin, though, uh, I think for the sake of full disclosure, we do need to state that we are both liberal. I wouldn't say left to right, because I think left and right are different things in the U.S. and Israel, but I think safe, safe to say liberal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, that's that's relevant because this is a book that's about politics in the United States. Um, and we would say the book itself has also is also taking sort of a... a a liberal slant on the issue. So yeah, right. we just thought we would get that out of the way right up front. <laughs> okay. So I, I think for the sake of people that haven't read the book yet, we'll start with a quick summary of, of the main points of the book. Um, so I guess the, the main question that Ezra Klein who wrote the book starts with is why did Trump get elected, right? Yeah. And, um, and of course, I mean, uh, being in the United States, when that election happened, I mean, I think as, as liberals, it was definitely a big shock to many of us. And I think a lot of us were asking that question. Indeed, like, I mean, Hillary Clinton went and wrote a whole book on why she lost, right? And not just in the US, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, right. But what I love, I mean, I think what makes this book really special is that it immediately subverts this question. I mean, it turns it on its head by asking, and I, I'll, I'll read a direct quote. It says, rather than asking how Trump won, we should be asking how Trump was close enough to win. Um, and indeed, you know, in this book, he like in the first chapter, he really goes on to say, um, how was it that even though we had one of the most unusual candidates on the Republican side that I mean, has ever existed within American politics, um, he was virtually guaranteed 40 something percent of the vote just by being a Republican candidate. And so it seems like that the whole argument then is is centered around asking this question of what's happened within our system that's made politics so polarized that the identity of the candidates doesn't matter. It just matters what party they're from. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it, it ultimately converted into the question of why we're polarized. Right. Uh, right. So I, I think Ezra brought up a few really interesting aspects on, on how to answer that. I will say, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I, you know, we no, talk no. about Ezra all the time, you know, it's like we're on a first name basis, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that um, Ezra, maybe to jump in, like, I think Ezra Klein is of course well known and well respected as a political commentator, um, but you can really see his voice uh, in the book, which I think is why we, we talk about it. Like, this is what Ezra says about, <laughs> about why, why we're polarized. Yeah, um, exactly. So I, I think I, I could really, I, I don't know, at least at this point, I'm, I'm really 
trying to think like Ezra, talk like Ezra, but yeah. So uh, I think as, as I was saying, uh, he, he was actually, he brought quite interesting aspects of how to look on this question of, of why we're polarized. So I'll, I'll just really quickly um, review a couple of the points that he made. So he started from talking about historical events that uh, maybe brought us to this point where we are. And specifically, he mentioned the Civil, Right Act, uh, the Civil Rights Act, sorry, in 1964. And uh, I think that's really interesting because at least as far as I could tell, it was this conscious decision by the Democratic Party to um, pick a side or pick allies or, or drop maybe some allies and tie this uh, racial thing to, to politics at that point. So this, this is obviously a very center point. Um, yeah, so I think another uh, aspect that he mentions is group dynamics. And he talks about group like uh, psychological aspects of group dynamics. Um, I, I found this fascinating. I, I mean, I, I see how how easy it is to make people um, feel like they're part of a group. This us versus them dynamics, and how this actually affects what they're doing or the decisions they're making. Yeah, so, in really, really fundamental ways that totally that that allow them to contradict logic out of basically such a strong desire to be part of their group it's it's insane we'll we'll definitely touch upon this more later yes exactly so that that was amazing and then i think sort of grouped together as other trends was uh for example like the the demographic uh, change, I would say. So I think uh, it's in, it's interesting because it's not only the demographic change that that actually happened throughout these years, but it's also, or maybe even mainly, the fear that this, that this change actually uh, caused within the, well, up until then, the very dominant uh, majority in in the country, right? So it's it's the behavior due to this fear. Uh, and and I think finally sort of closes all together in in this uh, feedback loop of polarization between the public and institutions. So um, I, I will quote it here. Um, in particular, I want to show the feedback loop, loop of polarization. Sorry, institutions polarize to appeal to a more polarized public, which further polarizes the public, which forces the institution to polarize further, and so on. Um, I think this one is very universal. I mean, it's it's not just the U.S. It's probably a lot of political systems around the world act the same way. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that's, I mean, the fact that uh, throughout the book, Ezra Klein was able to point to both sort of fundamental aspects of human psychology, as well as specific examples of shifts that are happening within the United or that have happened within the United States or are currently happening within the United States suggests that there is some universality to all of this. Um, mm -hmm. I guess uh, maybe the other point that I wanted to kind of drop in here, and I sort of mentioned this was that um, so Ezra Klein, of course, uh, the author of this book, I think has a has kind of a unique window on the issue by virtue of being 
deep within the within the system itself. Um, so, of course, he's a he's a political journalist. He worked at the Washington Post before founding Vox Media. Um, and has has reported on. I think he's now working for the New York Times as as an op ed writer. But um, one thing I really liked was that throughout the book, he kind of acknowledged his role as as a member of the media as contributing to the polarization. Um, so it not only gave him a view of the whole of the whole system by virtue of reporting on it, but then allowed him to kind of reflect personally on what journalists themselves are doing uh, to contribute to this. And I think that was particularly germane in like the second half of the book when he's talking about how, for example, people polarize the media, the media polarizes the people. Um, so yeah, I thought that this was a really unique take on the issue and definitely made the book uh, worthwhile to read. Yeah, I, I really like that as well. And I, I feel like in general, he really didn't try to whitewash things. Like he he just said things as they are in a lot of places, which is hard, especially if you are a party or or you're not necessarily is like objectively looking at things, but rather have to talk about yourself as well. I can imagine it being super difficult to write this book and being that self-reflective yeah. about your role within it. Yeah. The uh, I'll ask the obvious question, Manoshi. What what made you read the book? <laughs> yeah, it's um it's funny you asked the question because I think the way that we actually got to this book was was fairly roundabout. Um, uh, Dina and I, you know, we talk pretty frequently. I actually, I used to live in Israel. Uh, Dina and I used to work together. Um, so we, we would have these conversations basically, um, you know, talking about life. And in the last year, I think a lot of our lives were dominated by how much the governments of our respective countries just suck. Like how nothing gets done, how it's crazy that people get so entrenched, how logic doesn't seem to have any role in what anyone is doing anymore. Um, and so at the time, you know, uh, I I was a huge fan of Ezra Klein's um, in general. Like I've listened to his podcast for many years. I found him really interesting and insightful. And so I was kind of aware of the book. Um, and I mentioned it to Dina as being, well, you know, like, I don't know the answer to you know, why things are the way they are. But I mean, he seems to think he knows <laughs> Um, so I mentioned it to Dina, um, but of course it's, it's this type of thing where, you know, you, uh, you recommend a book without having actually read it yourself. Uh, so I didn't actually know much about it, but then I think like a week or two later, Dina came back to me saying like that not only had she read this book, but she was spewing out all these really fascinating facts about American politics that frankly, I was embarrassed that she knew as an Israeli that I, and I didn't know, but also, um, some really interesting insights that um, you know, that I had never heard before uh, as in terms of explanations for why why the polarization exists in our country. So um, I felt like I had to read the book, um, and so then and so then I did. Um, but but with that being said, I think the better question is, you know, Dina, what compelled you to read the book, given that it's of course about at the end of the day about American politics? Yeah. So. Yeah, so I have to say, like, I, I am really happy you recommended this book, even though you didn't read it. It's okay. I, I'm i fine with it. I mean, I trust your recommendations, but... Oh, that's nice. Um, <laughs> even when you don't have anything to back <laughs> up with. Um, but yeah, I, I think, as you said, I, I was, like, I, I was feeling frustrated for a long time now. and And I feel like... I was frustrated, but then I was also very much 
sort of shocked or baffled, not really understanding, like how 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 is it possible? So on the one hand, I'm I have all this uh, I don't know friends and people I'm surrounded with who seem to be well intentioned, and even though we don't necessarily agree on a- everything, still it seems like they have a logical view on things and and I can understand their actions and then we have all this really important things that humanity is facing today all these issues that we really need to tackle and then on the other hand we have this government that is really uninspiring corrupted at some parts and Going to its fourth election in two years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it it seems like the thing that surprised me most is not the fact that the government behaves in the way it behaves, but the fact that there seems to be so many people that are actually completely blind to what happens. And it seems like they're voting and there is no connection between the vote at the end and what actually they should be caring about or the things they... Um, say and what they do. I mean, it seems like there's such such a disconnection there. And mostly it just seems like hate seems to be the thing that motivates most people. It's just like they hate the other side. They hate others. So they do something, but not because they actually should be doing what they're doing. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a person of, as I said, I'm, I'm a data scientist before that, computational biologist. I'm, I'm a person of understanding and knowledge. So I think while being frustrated, I wanted at least to understand why those things are happening. Even if I can't do anything about it, at least I understand what what motivates people or what happened in the political system. And, And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you said before that it's actually, it's the US, it's not Israel. It's true. It's not about the Israeli politics, but there's actually quite a lot of resemblance, I think, between the U.S. and Israel. I mean, they're not maybe not in the structure, the way like the, our political system is actually built, but the general feeling and the way people are. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I think it's not necessarily just the U.S. Really. Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting point. Um well, I mean, I think you touched upon a lot of really interesting things. The fact that like well-intentioned people can uh, be sort of can can do the logical thing, but ultimately be be warped by systems. I think that was something that like in, even in the introduction to this book um, was an idea that Ezra Klein introduced that really resonated with me as well. Um, but I also think this this point that you make about um, sort of these. Uh, universe, these seemingly universal ideas underlying dysfunction within different governmental systems is really cool. So, I mean, could you expand on that? Like, what do you view as the similarities and the issues underlying the political systems in the U.S. versus in Israel? Yeah, so um, I think in order to understand that a bit better, maybe I need to just talk a little bit about how uh, the political system in Israel uh, is built. Uh, just very, very shortly, Israel is a parliamentary democracy, and we actually have uh, three different branches. We have the legislative branch, we have the executive branch, and we have the judicial branch. So the executive branch is actually the government, 
And then the legislative branch is what you call House of Representative, I think, and it's called Knesset. And uh, Knesset is consists out of 120 members in total. So then if we have general elections, we actually have multiple parties and each party has to present sort of a list of candidates. Um, and then uh, we have uh, the, the number of candidates that would eventually enter the Knesset after the election is proportional to the total number of votes this party received. Um, so this way, multiple parties can actually enter the Knesset with different amount of candidates, each totaling 120. Um, so th this is just in general, but I think already here, there is this very, um, very crucial point that Ezra brought up during the book, which was the negative partisanship. And even during the election in Israel with multiple parties, you can feel that. Um, so ju just a word about what this is actually. So what, what negative partisan, partisanship sorry, is, is when you vote to a party, not because you actually like or agree with the specific party, but because you hate the other parties more. So you sort of anything but the rest and, and, you, and you end up with this one. In the US, it's very clear because you have this binary system. So if not one, then zero, if not zero, then one. In Israel, it's a little bit more complicated since we have multiple parties, um, but still um, it's, it's so common. Politicians use this all the time. I mean, it's just crazy. Instead of actually proving themselves and doing something, they just uh, concentrate all their times and efforts making people hate others more or fear others more. So once they fear the others, they feel like they're, they have no other way but voting for them. So it's, it's not about being good, it's about painting the others in, in a very negative way. So um, yeah, related to that, yes, I, I remember you mentioned to me at one point that if you went onto a specific party's website, a lot of times they wouldn't even have a platform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, it feels like they just don't bother doing it anymore. Right? I mean, why bother if, if the entire, like most of your campaign is on social media or on news or something. And most of the time you just bad talk others or make people fear from the so-called left or like extremist or I don't know how you call them. And the thing is, they don't necessarily have to call themselves this way as well. I mean, it's very common that certain leaders, I wouldn't mention their names, would call, I'm just kidding, I don't mind mentioning, but yeah, they would call uh, newly formed or even not newly formed parties, left-wing parties, even though the party itself denies it. The, whatever intentions they do, state are not left wing, but it's just so easy to mark them as left and make, well, your voters who are mostly like right or center right, be scared of voting for them because, oh my God, they're left and they're like so horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I also, re I really liked how Ezra Klein kind of took the time to talk about 
what is the role of a party within within a system? And I think in a nutshell, it was that parties are supposed to basically represent what voters themselves would want to happen if they had the time and resources to really dedicate themselves to understanding the issues. But then if parties don't actually stand for particular positions on issues, then it of course means that like they're not serving their role within the government. Um, but yeah. I think the most significant example of why you need parties is Brexit. That's why you don't want people to make the decisions, right? You, you actually do want no, it's true. You, you don't want people who actually, you know, what's been like the most searched word after the Brexit vote no, in Google? I have no idea. Brexit. But it, that's been after the Brexit. <laughs> so in, in the UK, right? So it, you don't want people who are not informed. And it's not like I'm I'm saying that people are have been wrong at that point. No, you can't expect people to be informed of everything. I mean, maybe in, in the sense of Brexit, they should have searched for it before rather than after. But yeah, I mean, people are not supposed to um, to know everything and they're not supposed to do their research on everything all the time. So that's why they're not the one making all these decisions, all these legislations. Right. Should be. Uh, but if a politician is actually not doing anything, then why would you vote? That's right. Yeah, no, I think you've touched upon so many interesting points related to like negative partisanship and how it, how it plays out. And of course, I mean, this is a major factor in the U.S. as well. I mean, the way, for example, uh, Kamala Harris has been demonized as a socialist. I think the word socialist yeah. um, is very analogous to the word left wing within Israeli politics. Um, do you think that there are other similarities, for example, bet between Israeli and American, I guess, politics and how these group dynamics play out aside from the negative partisanship? Yeah, I, th I think there is another one that Ezra Klein touched, which uh, which is really interesting. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just give you a couple more details on how the politics in Israel works, so you'll understand how it works in Israel. But so, as I said, we have this Knesset and we have all these parties within the Knesset. Um, and but we need to form the government once the Knesset is chosen after the election. So usually the head of the strongest party um, would actually be given the mandate to form this new government. Uh, so the government needs the support of the Knesset in order to be formed. So it needs a majority since we have 120 seats in the Knesset. So it needs at least 61 seats in order to, to be formed. Um, and the funny thing is that, well, I think somewhere in the 80s was the last time that the strongest party received more than 40 seats, which means that they need to get at least like 20 to 25 more seats in their coalition from other parties in order to form a government. So that obviously causes a problem. Uh, and this problem actually relates to an issue or a thing that Ezra Klein talked about, which is the problems in homogeneity in general and the excessive power of homogeneous blocks. Um, so I think this actually splits into two separate things. One being if the party uh, in power is homogeneous, it's bad by itself because then it's more likely to move to the extreme in order to keep their voters. They just wanna sort of separate their voters from the other parties. Right. Right. He had, he had a line in the book about how um, dissent within the 
uh, within the parties uh, is resolved via compromise, but then between parties is resolved via basically this painting the other one as the out group. So if you don't have dissent, though, it means that you can't have comprom uh, you can't have compromise. But then uh, it also means that the party can shift to more and more extreme positions, as you said. Exactly. They they don't really need to to satisfy all the subgroups. They don't have them. They're all sort of homogeneous. Exactly. But the other thing, which is even more related to Israel, is this excessive power that homogeneous blocks get. So if you're a small party and you're homogeneous, it's also pretty bad, especially in the type of system we have in Israel, because then you're sort of a very easy ally to a big party to establish dominance. They know exactly what they need to offer you in order to yeah, make you they, an ally. Yeah, exactly. They, they don't need to offer much. Uh, they just need to offer that. Um, so this actually happened also in the U.S. Ezra Klein talked about it with the Dixiecrats, right, and the Democratic. Uh, I mean, the, I, I hadn't actually. That's the thing. Like as an American, I was I was uh, a little embarrassed. I wasn't aware of the power that um, the Southern Democrats held over the Democratic Party. I think through some combination of. Um, the fact that at the local level, the elections were very, very tightly controlled um, by a strong party apparatus. And then basically because they were able to hold people in power for so long, um, they had very senior members within the national government. And then those senior members held leadership positions. I mean, it, it really just like it, it was a very unified effort that ultimately allowed them to basically control the direction of the Democrats on race for many, many years. Um, but yeah, I think that to me, that was a really fascinating part of the book. Yeah, for me as well. I mean, I'm obviously I'm not American, so I, I was definitely not aware of a lot of parts of American history. Like I didn't know that the Democrats used to have this Dixiecrats, I mean, Southern Democrats as allies. And I mean, that that really surprised me. But in fact, we have a sort of similar issue in Israel with the Likud, which is um, the party in power, I mean, currently and in, in the past, well, quite quite a long time now. Right. That's, it's Netanyahu's party, right? The exactly. It's Benjamin Netanyahu's party, or Bibi, as we like to call him, <laughs> um, and the Orthodox party. So the Orthodox party, it's actually two parties, but as I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be a party, but rather a block, voting block. So they are, if, if you're not a, if you're not familiar with it, they're actually very homogeneous. I mean, they really tend to vote uh, the same way, mostly as their um, uh, like uh, community leaders, or rabbis tell them. And and it, yeah, as they said, they're really convenient allies for the Likud because the Likud has been getting less than 40 seats for, I don't know, like 30 years now. So they're very convenient allies to have. You just give them a few, like a few things that they demand and that's it. But what it causes actually is that they have this excessive power, the, the Orthodox party, and they really manipulate Benjamin Netanyahu and the, and the whole system in their favor, which is obviously not good, causes a lot of biases and and really 
um, prevents a lot of like natural progress of legislation that should have been happening, but they just block it. Mm. So how many seats does Netanyahu stand to gain by allying himself with the conservative party, or with, sorry, with the orthodox parties, just to give it an estimate? So he, he probably, from the Likud party alone, has probably like 30 some seats, right? Yeah, so it's it, it been changing in the past. Uh, as I said, we had like, we are now going to our fourth election in two years. But yeah, so it's been moving, like the range was around 30 to 35. The Orthodox Party, interestingly, or not interestingly, has been getting exactly the same amount of mandates bound to their natural, they grow more people voting. So they've been getting around 16 mandates together, both parties. Imagine like Netanyahu just handed those 16 mandates each time. Assuming he can make a deal with them and he's been very successful in making those. They just want money and they want to be left alone. Of course, you know, we're saying this not being Orthodox Jews. So maybe, maybe we may be over. No, it's not even the Orthodox Jews. It's the parties or the leaders. Um, I don't even think it's in their best favor as as communities. But yeah, but de facto, this this what's been going on. It's a tremendous amount of power relative to their population size. Yeah. No, I think that the somehow the parallels between... Israel and the United States in terms of the dysfunctionality and the politics. I mean, even the fact that, uh, you know, Donald Trump and Bibi were were great friends and represented extremely polarizing figures within politics. It's uh, as a as an American living in Israel, it was uh, the yeah, the parallels were were super, super interesting. And of course, this is given the fact that, you know, in the United States, it's a two party system versus this very complicated, well, what looks to me like a very complicated multi party coalition building system that I wasn't familiar with. Before. I don't know. Yeah, I actually want to ask you what what's been like the most surprising fact or idea that you learned from reading this book? Oh, my gosh, it's I mean, honestly, it's just it's really hard to choose. I felt like um, one of the real strengths of this book was um, the way in which Ezra Klein would review the literature, particularly uh, studies in sociology and anthropology that related to um, the broader questions of, of human psychology, the manner in which politics have played out in the United States. Um, so I think it felt like every page there was a new study telling me something really interesting. Uh, and I, I'm saying that for real. Um, what I did want to kind of mention, though, was was that as a scientist, I think stumbling upon chapter four alone made the whole book worthwhile. <laughs> Seriously, like this book. Uh, so this chapter um, illustrated the effect of group polarization on on logical reasoning. Um, and, and frankly, it made me. I mean, it really made me sit up in my chair and take notes for a lot of reasons. Um, I was questioning my my beliefs about, you know, the way that science is being messaged to the public and also the way that science outreach is being done in very, very fundamental ways, simply because um, I think we as scientists are really locked into a way of thinking where we believe that with sufficient amounts of information, um, we will be able to bring people over to our side. It's, it's what makes sense. That's what's objective, right? Um, when in reality, we're really ignoring this whole other aspect of group polarization that allows people to ignore um, ignore what we consider logical, but for a very sort of, in, in their minds, I think logical reasoning. Um, 
so I wanted to give a specific example from chapter four because I loved it so much. Um, it's that, so they, they did a study where they basically gave people uh, a math problem and the math problem, and, and, you know, before they had ways of testing people's mathematical capability independently of, of this particular math problem, but then they gave them, uh, not just one math problem, but two math problems, one of which was about something that was non-political. Um, let's, I think they, uh, they might've mentioned it was about a skin cream or something like that versus a highly political issue, which was whether or not a proposal to ban people from carrying handguns would work. Um, and what they found was that on the non-political issue, whether or not you got this math problem, this thing that's absolute fact, right? Um, corresponded well to mathematical ability, as you might expect. But on the political issue, uh, I'll, I'll just read the quote. Liberals were extremely good at solving the problem when doing so proved that gun control legislation reduced crime. But when presented with the version of the problem that suggested gun control had failed, their math skills stopped mattering. <laughs> they tended to get the problem wrong no matter how good they were at math. Conservatives exhibited the same pattern, just in reverse. And there was a part later on where... Um, I think that really underscores the point, which is that people weren't reasoning to get the right answer. They're reasoning to get the answer that they wanted to be right. Um, and I think this whole, I think obviously this has a, a formal term, it's motivated reasoning. Um, and what I thought that chapter four did extremely well was to underline, or basically sort of underscore what is the psychological basis for motivated reasoning? It's that you desire so much to be part of this group, and there are major consequences if you break from the major consensus of your group. Um, and so it, it makes it makes me approach sort of the things that I consider illogical within American politics from a much more compassionate bent, because I think it makes me feel like, okay, there are some really deep-seated fears of being separated from your group that underlie all of this. Um, I think the other thing that I thought was really important to mention was that, you know, I think as scientists, we like to think that we are kind of above motivated reasoning, but I would, but I would say that like, as, as hard as we try, we're still humans and it's still possible to trick yourself. And I think that's another thing that was addressed very directly in chapter four, that there are incentive structures um, within politics where very, very smart, very well-intentioned people find it very difficult to break from their group. Um, and also that it's really easy to trick yourself into motivated reasoning, even when you think you're being objective. So with that being said, I think I came away much more humble about, um, you know, the role of scientists in society. And it, I, I can't say I have the answers, but it really did make me wonder whether or not we're approaching science outreach and interfacing with the public in the right way. Yeah, that, that's that's really fascinating. I, I guess it, it makes me want to ask you, are you actually scared that you are doing maybe the same thing? Like here, I'm actually, yeah, not being really objective as I've been wanting to be. Yeah, well, um, you know, I think that there are many examples where um, even as a scientist, I'm not fully well-versed on all of the issues and yet in my head, I want to take a strong position. I'm gonna be a little bit controversial and talk about climate change, which is to say like, I'm not a geologist, I'm not a climate change expert. Um, and I can't say that I've read all of the studies myself on climate change. 
Um, and yet, I do take a very strong position. But do you think anyone read all the studies? Probably, like, uh, I don't think anyone read all the studies. And at some point, I mean, in order to get things done or to progress, we have to take a stand, right? We need to choose. When do you feel it's safe enough to choose? Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, I think there, there was a quote by, um, wow, I'm now going to, I'm just not going to attribute it to anyone. It was <laughs> trust, but verify. Um, oh, you know, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said that trust, but verify. And um, this is to say that um, remaining skeptical, I think, as a scientist and as a citizen, uh, I think is the key. So I can hold a belief now, but I should be very open to updating that belief. Uh, to me, that's the only, you know, that's, that's learning. Um, but it, and I, I apply it to my life as a scientist, but it should also apply to your life as a citizen. Amen to that. I don't know. I, I like, remember, I think we did talk a little bit about it before. And I remember our, the thing that we concluded with was, if you haven't changed your mind for a really long time, then maybe something is wrong, right? I mean, right. in a sort of a, a balanced or natural way of, of living and, and critical way of thinking, you're wrong. You're sometimes wrong. And it's okay to be wrong as, lo as long as you leave an opening to sort of other opinions or other facts, doesn't matter, but... Um, and yeah. change your mind every once in a while, because it's okay. It's, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to think one thing and then change it to another. Obviously not zigzagging all the time, but still like every once in a while do it. And if you haven't done it for a really long time, then maybe some, you've been doing something wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think that the real difficulty is when, and probably one of the reasons people become so entrenched in their opinions is because saying something different would really threaten their identity in the group. So I feel like if I reached a stage where like me questioning the consensus on climate change would lead me to be rejected by all of my friends, when you're at that stage where you might reason for reasons that have nothing to do with pure logic and wanting to be right, um, and this is something the book says too, then that's when you know you're in, you're in danger. So I think maybe doing this constant check-in with yourself is the way to go. But, but honestly, um, you know, we'll talk about this a little later. I mean, I think the book did a really great job of, uh, bringing problems to light, um, but wasn't necessarily super clear on what we should about them. So I think it's something that we should be having an ongoing dialogue about, frankly. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. Well, so what do you think was the most uh, surprising or interesting thing you learned from the book? Mm, I think, again, as a non-American, someone who really wasn't aware of a lot of aspects, I think, of American history. Yeah, yeah you were super, super uh, weirded out by Strom Thurmond. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For example... <laughs> yeah, so things like that. But also, like I, I do follow the um, like news in the US um, and political news just in general, I guess, in the past, I don't know, five, six years. But I think before that, not so much. I mean, just like when major things happen. Um, and I think so for me, 
learning that the Democratic and Republican Party, as we know them today, it's actually just, well, somewhere starting in the second half of the 20th centuries. And actually before that, I think, yeah, Ezra Klein wrote about how they were, well, very similar, equally as likely to vote for abortion rules, for example, Republicans endorsed Medicare, which was actually much more liberal plan than Obamacare. And there were like many, many other examples of the fact that the, this, this difference that we are familiar with today actually didn't exist before that. The, as we mentioned before, the, the Democratic Party was actually um, allies um, with the Dixiecrats, which were Southerns, right? right? That was really surprising for me. And right, the way that yes, things are it, today isn't the way that it always has been. This is exactly, exactly. This is just what they are today. But, um, but I think this is exactly what Ezra tried to emphasize that the fact that before that the two parties were so close together so similar you might as well just voted for one or for the other and it, it wasn't really clear how they differ while today i mean it's very clear what's the difference almost any issue i'm going to raise today you're going to say how the democratic party is going to vote and how the republican party is going right. to vote and right. i think yeah this is this is really interesting yeah I don't know. I think actually t talking about like the, the fact that what's been and what's today, I think quite early in the book, uh, Ezra Klein presented an argument. He was really convincing about the fact that polarization is something very, very fundamental um, of human nature. So it, it almost feels like we don't need to ask why we are polarized. We need to be asking what happened now? Why have we became so polarized now, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that, um, yeah, I, I noticed that um, sort of interesting tension as well. The fact that, like, it seems almost inevitable given the way, uh, you know, he makes an evolutionary argument. I'm not sure how much that holds. But the, the fact that, like, we as humans are so inclined to be, you know, to get involved in these sort of group dynamics and to specify other people as the outgroup. Um, and yet somehow politics in the United States had managed to muddle along without actually devolving into this, this you know, into such a polarized state. Um, so, I, I mean, frankly, I would love to hear Ezra Klein's answer to this question. Um, I think the, the book obviously points to um, historical phenomena, like specifically the Civil Rights Act, as being this key turning point where the Democrats basically chose to break their their long-term allyship with the southern democrats um in order to uh, it, it basically in in the idea that they could form a new more sort of racially diverse coalition moving forward um and i think there was a part, part in the book too where lyndon b johnson basically i think he said something like okay now by signing this we've basically handed the south to the republicans um, and frankly, you know, polarization, uh, I guess sort of group dynamics aside, there were specific strategic efforts um, by the Republican Party to take advantage of that. I think that Nixon's, for example, so-called Southern strategy 
um, to appeal to white voters in the South was was a big concerted effort where they saw they saw an opening and then it, it, they were able to take it. Um, but um, I think what Ezra might also argue is that the fact that America is currently undergoing this transition into becoming a, ma- a majority minority country um, has created a situation where people feel threatened and thus they um, are more inclined to to kind of activate their their group identities and polarize into distinct groups. Um, another chapter in the book actually mentions uh, also the fact that uh, the internet has created a more competitive media environment where now media outlets aren't trying to just kind of be generally uh, pleasing to lots of different audiences, but rather extremely appealing to specific audiences in order to basically be the outlet of choice for particular groups. Um, so I will say that, like, there, I don't think that there's any single factor probably that we can point to for the transition, but some combination of it is just historical accident. And a lot of it is is um, the fact that, like, the modern era, we're changing the way that we live, the way that we interact with people, and the way that we interact with the media and politics as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think I was... I was really wondering about this question a lot while reading the book. Um, and I think, as, as you said, Ezra did talk about some uh, aspects of it and maybe provided some answers. Um, but I, I really have to say that I was really surprised that during this process, he didn't mention anything about a subject that I at least feel is very, very central to today's society. Um, which is technology, and specifically the social media on the one part, and then this uh, sort of personal data of ours being used on the other uh, side. So, I mean, obviously I'm a data scientist, so maybe that's, I think about that, but I think uh, slowly but surely more and more people are beginning to, to talk about it, and they, they are beginning to understand that companies like Google and Facebook and others are not just providing us this free services out the, of the goodness of their hearts, you know. Um, there's, there's a really nice quote. I think it's been quoted in many different ways, uh, which is, if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. Oh, love and I don't know who said it first, actually, but... <laughs> Uh, but I really like it. And I think it it really emphasized the point that, well, most people don't have any idea about the permissions the apps on their phones have, what kind of data is being collected, what's been done with it later. They have no idea that a lot of the websites they see or the ads they see are actually personalized ads. I mean, not everyone see the same thing, which is amazing. I mean, <laughs> shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking. I mean, you and me might enter both of us the same uh, web page, but then we will be actually offered different ads. Maybe even the, the general positioning will be different. So, yeah, so we don't see the same reality online a lot of the times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can combine then that with the effect of social media, which is how easy it is to, today to make yourself heard. And it doesn't matter really if what you're saying is actually true or not, right? 
even better so like maybe make up a story it will be more interesting so it will actually be published more and and this is a very ground for conspiracy theories but what's really important to say that it's not just like general people making up all this like conspiracy theories it's actually also a lot of opportunism or a lot of people that are using it people or corporates or yeah people in power who are using it in order to uh, get what they want or to progress their reality or their truth doesn't matter if it's the real truth Right, right. I think that like, the fact is the, you know, having access to data combined with advances, let's say in machine learning, um, has made it quite possible to take your data and actually design a manipulation scheme, right? And I think that that's really different, as you said, from like a lot of what um, was talked about in the book, which was, you know, well intentioned actors behaving in ways that um, that are, that seem logical within the system. But I think, as you said, what's sort of missing is these ill-intentioned actors as well that can take advantage of the data that you have, as well as, of course, you know, the other parts of social media and stuff. Exactly. And I think it's the fact that we don't see the same realities. That's the main point. Obviously, it's important for our data to be used and so on. But this fact, I think it's it's very important to understand how can this actually polarize us by the way have you seen the great hack like the cambridge analytica no <laughs> no not okay so if you haven't you should um but actually yeah i i want to uh, quote something from there because i think it it's it's a very interesting documentary by netflix that talks about cambridge analytica who if if you are not familiar with was a data science company that was yeah i i don't want to say interfering but yes interfering or um doing a lot of uh decision making within many different uh political campaigns including trump campaign uh, and they were using data, mostly like Facebook users' data, um, in order to, um, well, let, let me quote. I think it's going to explain itself. Okay. So there is this character in the documentary. Her name is Brittany Kaiser, and she is a former director uh, of business development of Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and... It's important to say that she, at some point, started uh, testifying against them, against Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and she, during the documentary, she's being asked by Paul Hilder, who is a writer and a political technologist. Uh, so Paul asks her, uh, the idea of a company conducting large-scale analysis of a population and then identifying the triggers that people have what's gonna move them from one state to another. That feels very challenging to the individual sense of autonomy and freedom and the idea of democracy, doesn't it? And then Brittany answers, mm, I don't know, I would challenge that. What, is, uh, what this strategy is mostly meant to do is to identify people who are still considering different options and educate them on some of the options that are out there. And if they're on the fence, um, then they can be persuaded to go one way or the other. Again, 
that is their own choice. And then Paul asks her, is it? And she pauses a second and says, well, at the end of the day, they're the ones that go to the uh, ballot box and make their decision. And I mean, I find it fascinating because I think Brittany, as I said, she testifies against them. And at this point, she was already testifying against them. So I think she understood that part of what they were doing was bad. I think she understood that using private data and illegal private data was bad, but she didn't fully understand that this is not just bad in sense of privacy, this is actually manipulative. This is actually taking the real free choice out of the hands of people. And this is not real democracy. Yeah, I feel like this conversation here somehow it, it encapsulates the issue so beautifully. So I'm really glad that you read it. But I think that um, it it almost highlights maybe the same the same sort of stance that Mark Zuckerberg was having when he went before Congress um, to kind of defend Facebook. Um, the position that that's been held, I mean, I, I think up until very very recently, is just. You know, we're going to put that we're going to put the stuff out there. You know, we're going to let people do what they want. And at the end of the day, you know, people are, uh, you know, they can make their own decisions without taking ownership of the fact that the algorithms that are being developed at these companies, even, you know, including algorithms that, you know, you as a data scientist can understand because you're, you know, you they're, they're kind of within your field that like they can be used to manipulate people such that they can't make informed choices. They're making choices informed by by bad bad news bad like um bad data whatever it is um and somehow like i think i felt like in the congressional hearings that point got lost um and maybe it's just that people don't understand this but i mean that's why i really want to like hammer it in now it this is a thing i feel like we as americans maybe we worldwide need to worry about we need to worry about it not just america and everyone needs to worry about it. And the fact that our governments, a lot of the countries don't really protect us the way they should, don't really protect um, our data the way they should is really concerning. They don't understand uh, it, I think. I think they yeah. don't understand the magnitude of the issue. And that's why that's why we need more science and technology people in the government. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my it's true. talk. We, 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 <laughs> we don't, I mean... I think a lot of people sort of leave it to the companies to, I don't know, again, out of the goodness of their hearts or something, I don't know, make the right decisions. And obviously, public pressure can cause things to happen, but it shouldn't be just that. That requires having an informed public too, right? I think it needs to come from from the government. It needs to come from legislation. It needs to be really unquestionable and currently it is questionable and and again some the the conversation is there i mean there's there was the the data protection conference in denmark yeah i think this week and like obviously in zoom but still and i think tim cook talked in the conference and he was really clear about apple's intention in in data protection which is great and this is how you want all companies to be, but this is a little bit of wishful thinking. And 
I, I think kind of regardless, there's nothing legally binding even Apple to that as well, right? Yes, but so. but Apple don't make their business out of data. I mean, things are, hmm. as I said, like if you don't pay your the products in in Apple sense, you do pay. So you aren't the product. You could be, but you're you're not necessarily. But yeah, but for companies like Facebook, I don't know. Would you pay for your Facebook? But maybe maybe we should be. I don't... <laughs> Moving on to maybe the most important question. Um, Manoshi, did you like the book? <laughs> I think it's become very clear. I, I, lear- I, yeah. I like this book a lot. Um, I Frankly, I would say if scientists out there who care about um, what's happening, like the dynamic between science and the American government, you really should read this book. Um, and I think that there's a lot that that we who think we're on the right side of history can learn um, about how we're how we're coming across and how we can change that. Um, I would say, like the book itself, you know, I think a lot of the reviews of the book um, argued that it didn't say anything new. And I, you know, of course, I'm no political pundit, but I do I do read news online, and so then. Um, I will say that like a lot of the arguments were arguments that I had heard before, but I had never seen them synthesized in such a clean in a clean and understandable way, um, and, it's, and especially geared towards a broad audience. So I think in that sense, it allowed me to kind of take a step back from the day-to-day um, nature of like news journalism and and think more about broader trends, including, for example, like how the government is structured, how it's... Um, and how uh, how the government interfaces with media, how and how we as citizens uh, kind of inf- are, play a role in this whole system. Um, let me see. I also thought the writing was very was very pleasant and easy to read, which was a big plus, especially for me coming in as an outsider. Um, what did you think of the book? Yeah, I I think you you said it all. I mean, I read. I really like the book. I think that while I was a little slightly scared at the beginning that I might not understand a lot of the details. So the first two chapters are very dense with like historical, American historical details. But afterwards, it becomes very universal, very true for a lot of political systems and countries. So I think a lot of people going to gonna really enjoy reading it and learn a lot. So as I said, I read it to begin with to understand things around me better because I I still don't know how to change things, but I mm-hmm. do feel like I understand them better, which, well, I guess to some sense is the first step, right? Yeah, yeah. So along those lines, like yeah. what, what do you wish had been discussed more in the book? I think you already mentioned um, technology, but yeah, so I think you actually put it as a really nicely as a, like one phrase, like what are the bad factors or ill-intentioned players, Yeah, mm-hmm. which takes us to technology and social media, but also takes us to corporates. And I don't really need uh, Ezra Klein to mention all of them, but it's really interesting just to see how how much effect do they actually have on the outcome at the end? Yeah. Um, I think another thing, you know, I, I grew up in Israel and we have this multiple party system. And I grew up under the impression that this is one of our main problems, that we have all this 
parties and that given that we sort of raise the threshold to entering the Knesset, I mean, a party has to receive so-and-so amount of votes in order to enter. If we really raise it up and we're only left with like two or three parties, then we won't have all this excessive um, power within small parties and things would be more stable. Reading this book, well, I don't think that anymore, but then I don't really know what the solution should be, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. One of the coolest parts of the book, uh, maybe also the most disturbing, was the fact that, I mean, so I think Ezra Klein points out that the American system of government has never been replicated anywhere else in the world, um, and yes. nor have people even attempted to uh, replicate it because I think they realize inherent instabilities in the system that they did not want to replicate. And so I think, frankly, I, that's not something I had, I had recognized. And it also kind of raises the question then of like, okay, if not this, then what? Um, Because as you said, you know, having been able to compare across countries, it's unclear that, you know, Israel's parliamentary democracy is the, is the right solution either. Yeah, I mean, there is a whole chapter about what's what should be done next, but I, I felt like it was sort of, I felt like Ezra Klein, I think he also said something of that, like he doesn't like the part and he like felt he's mandated to write it, but yeah, I, I, I was like wanting to cling to something. I was like, okay, there's hope. Yeah, let's do that. And then it was like, yeah, I, th- I felt like that was, I felt like his discomfort was palpable in that section. I'll, he, he wrote, I don't like concluding chapters. Authors who write whole books about devilishly complex social problems and then pretend they can be solved in just a few bullet points. I mean, and the thing, it's, it's true. I mean, it seems like his honest take on it is that this is a devilishly complex social problem and... Uh, there's not necessarily a clear answer. I think that's something that became increasingly clear to me as I read the book, um, because frankly, it was just factor after factor after factor, each chapter introducing a new facet of our government or the media or ourselves that seems to all contribute to, again, this positive feedback of of polarization. It, it makes it really hard to to... Prescribe. I mean, it, it, what it means is that there's no single thing that's just going to break this loop. You know what um, it means, though? What? That Ezra Klein has to write another book. <laughs> I think that's what it means. Uh, well, please do. <laughs> if you're listening. Yeah. I mean, when, I will mention like a couple of the solutions that he that he mentioned. I think um, he mentioned sort of specific changes that the government could make, for example, like getting rid of the debt ceiling or by changing the congressional budgetary process, which of course, I mean, in the United States, these are major, major sources of gridlock. But even these like very concrete suggestions, I I think I was just left feeling pretty hopeless. Like it felt kind of pie in the sky, um, given the way, the way things are. Um, and then... I mean, this is all to say, like, I think he's probably completely accurate in in the prescriptions that he that he made. They felt spot on, but then there just wasn't a, a roadmap to get there. So but at the same time, like, I totally admit that's asking way too much from this book. Um, and so, yeah, maybe maybe he will write another book. <laughs> Let's see, maybe the one other thing that like I 
I just was intensely curious about um, in in reading the book was that uh, there were these small hints that science is different from politics. In science, there are these concrete answers. There's certain things that are absolutely true. And then there's politics that's more open, you know, where the, the problems are more open to interpretation, subject to value judgments, etc. Um, and yet, I think the book also acknowledges that scientific issues can, and I mean, clearly do get get polarized by uh politicized and then ultimately polarized. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, again, this, I think this was outside the scope of the book, but I became really fascinated with this question of how it is that science gets polarized, what makes uh, certain scientific issues more subject to polarization than others. And I think it's also, you know, my hypothesis is that it is linked to um, the specific issues that are, that tend to activate some aspects of our group identities. Um, and one thing I will I will say I took away from the book is that as more and more of our identities get tied up in which party we identify with, it's going to become easier and easier to polarize these so-called objective scientific issues. So I think it's something that we have to be really careful about moving forward. Wow, yes. So those are some very interesting thoughts. Um, thank you very much for recommending the book. I'm I'm really glad we read it. Um, and this concludes another episode of Formalized Curiosity. If you want to hear us discuss more books or other ideas, please subscribe to Formalized Curiosity podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and stop by our discussion forums at formalizedcuriosity.substack.com. Bye-bye.